Anyway, so today we will be, oh my gosh, my desk is like literally hanging on by one screw. My other screw oh, fell no. off and I don't, because like the screw is stripped, so I can't just like screw the little screwdriver back, or no, what are those things called? Screw back in. Mm-hmm. So if if you hear a loud crash, it's just my desk falling apart. Well, I hope that does not happen. <laughs> Um, anyway, so PSA again to, to everyone out there, if you leave a review for our podcast, we will donate a dollar to, I'm looking up the name so I get it right, the National Center for Victims of Crime. So tell your friends, tell your family, that's really helpful to our podcast, helps us get, you know, more people looking at it. And the more reviews there are, the more likely people are to click on it and listen. So good stuff. Um, and then on that note, today we are revisiting a topic that we've done in the past. No, it wasn't the first one we did. Well, I guess they were serial killers, right? In the beginning, was that the first episode we did with serial killers? I think technically, or was we didn't it have a formal theme? Oh wait, no, I think it was women who murdered their partners. Yeah, something like that. But I think that they were both serial they, yeah. killers anyway. But then we did serial killers as an episode. We did later, um, like the women who like killed children, and I think they just happened to kill multiple. Oh. So. <laughs> So is this the first time we're doing just straight serial like killers? formal serial killers, like, as the topic. I think so. Wow. Why did I think that we already did this before? I mean, we've done a few people who've killed multiple people, so I guess... Sadly. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, yeah. And then also, like, um, like, Angels of Mercy. Yes, those are medical serial... Oh, I guess it was medical serial killers yeah, that we did. yeah. Well, this is exciting. First time. I'm surprised we haven't done it more often. I think it's because we keep gravitating towards cases that are less violent. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, my case is very depressing, so. Same, unfortunately. But it's hard to do happy serial killers in our defense, yeah. so. No, unless it was like a Dexter-type situation. Well, I mean, murder, still bad. I never watched that. Oh, I tried to watch that show, and I don't. I, I didn't did. even I make liked it. it for a while. I didn't even make it through the first episode. Oh, I was gosh. like, "This is too violent for me." I I liked it. Um, I related to Dexter in some ways, not in murderous ways. I don't like blood, and I'm much too lazy for that type of lifestyle. But yeah, I liked the show for a while, and then John Lithgow um, wasn't was a character or played a character on it and he scared the crap out of me so i had to stop fun (laughs) fun fun hello everyone and welcome to pink collar crime a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women i'm rachel and i'm natalie if you're joining us for the first time welcome each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details motives similarities and differences etc etc if you like our show tell your friends please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show and give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. Um, so my mom's friend or something, someone my mom knows recommended this case a while back. So I'll have to text my mom and tell her to tell whoever said that I should do this case that I'm finally getting around to doing it. Um, Okay, so to start, so Dorothy Helen Gray was born on January 9th in 1929 in Redlands, California. Her parents, Jesse James Gray and Trudy Gray, 
had seven children, Dorothea being the second youngest. So when Dorothea was eight, her father passed away from tuberculosis. Her mother struggled with alcohol abuse and would frequently abuse the children. Sometimes Dorothy and her siblings were left alone while their mother was gone for extended periods of time. In 1838, Trudy lost custody of her children. And later that year, at the age of 10, Dorothea lost her mother in a motorcycle accident. So Dorothea was bounced between the homes of relatives, foster homes, and eventually when she turned 16 years old, she decided to leave California and start fresh in Olympia, Washington. She did sex work to earn money and ended up catching the eye of a 22-year-old soldier who just returned to the U.S. after World War II. The two married in 1945 and moved to Nevada to start a family. Dorothea had a daughter in 1946 and had a second daughter about a year later, but she had an extremely difficult time adjusting to motherhood. Like her own mother, Dorothea did not appear to have that motherly instinct. One of her daughters was taken in by relatives and the other was put up for adoption. Dorothea claimed that she had twin daughters at some point, this is something she said way later on, and that um, they were both put, or they both died by suicide in adulthood. So as I'm going through kind of her beginning story, she did have quite a few marriages. Some I do talk about, some I don't get to, um, just because there was so much information as a part of this case. But I wanted to stick to the really important stuff, like her relationships with her parents, her siblings, her family background a little bit, just so we can get a better understanding of where she might be coming from. Um, So Dorothea and her husband split up in 1948, and Dorothea moved to San Bernardino. She was criminally convicted after trying to pass a check under a false name. Dorothea served four months in jail and fled after her release, not really paying too much mind to the terms of her probation. Dorothea married again in 1952 to a man she met in San Francisco. There were a lot of problems throughout the course of their marriage. Dorothea drank, gambled, and often was hanging around other men. She was put on antipsychotics after her husband had her committed to a psychiatric hospital in 1961. And a year prior, Dorothy had been arrested um, during a bust by an undercover cop. She was working for this business uh, whose front was a bookkeeping service, but it was actually a brothel. So she had been offering her services to a cop and then she was arrested and had to serve 90 days in county jail. Dorothea was divorced again in 1966. So in 1968, Dorothea was married again at the age of 39. That's not unusual, but what was unusual was the age gap. Her husband was 16 years her junior. Roberto Puente was a Mexican immigrant who was looking for two things in a wife, money and American citizenship. Dorothy used the fact that she had a Mexican last name to claim Mexican heritage, and she would tell people that she was born in Mexico. It helped that she spoke passable Spanish, and she would often donate money to Hispanic arts and education programs, and she offered cheap medical care to the borders that she would later serve, um, you know, from Hispanic backgrounds, and she claimed that she was a nurse in World War II. But this was not the case considering she was 13 year old and living in California the time that she said she was overseas. So her story's just not lining up. She earned the nickname of La Doctora and had many flattering articles written about her in Spanish publications. She would give away food and clothes to Hispanic communities and offered her support to women in the community who were thinking about divorcing their husbands. Um, Dorothy and Roberto split up in 1969, um, and it was then that Dorothy opened up her boarding house at 21st and F Streets. The three-story Victorian mansion could sleep a dozen tenants. She had previously run an unauthorized rehab program for those struggling with alcohol abuse, and this boarding house seemed like the logical next step. Dorothy was smart, she took a good portion of her earnings and donated them to charities and political campaigns. This helped her gain credibility in the elite social circles. So she was able to get away with forging the signature of her tenants on benefits before she signed them over to herself. 
but the scam didn't last long. She was arrested in 1978 and put on five years of federal probation and was no longer allowed to operate a boarding house. Dorothea shifted gears and started working as an in-home caregiver. She avoided suspicion by claiming she was about 10 to 15 years older than she actually was, wore these large, kind of ridiculous glasses, dressed modestly, and had a tremulous voice, which means shaking or quivering. Had to look that one up. But if you look up a picture of Dorothea, you know, as she was doing all of these things, she was an older woman, but she dressed like a straight up grandma. So it's clear that she was kind of doing this so people wouldn't be too suspicious of her, but I would definitely recommend looking up a picture so you get a good idea of, you know, what we're dealing with here. Um, so her elder, elderly clients felt like they could trust her, and Dorothy immediately took advantage of the situation by drugging them with tranquilizers. Tranquilizers. I'm good at words. Um, and stealing their valuables. So William Clausen's mother, Ruth Monroe, had moved in with Dorothea after her husband died from cancer so that she could start saving money. Two weeks after moving in, Ruth was not doing well. Before moving in uh, with Dorothea, Ruth's health was completely fine, but now she was so sick she could hardly even stand up. When William went to check in on Ruth, uh, Dorothea was giving her alcohol to help calm her nerves. Ruth didn't drink, so this was especially strange to William, and the fact that Dorothea claimed she was a nurse and was giving someone alcohol to help calm their nerves. I mean, it was the 80s, but even then, I feel like that's not accepted. It's not like the 1800s or whatever. Um, So a few days later, Ruth was dead. The doctor said it was a suicide caused by an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen, but her family believed she was poisoned. Dorothea drained thousands of dollars out of her and Ruth's joint business account just after the funeral. So if Ruth's death had been properly investigated at this point, it might have ended up sparing a lot of lives down the road. So it's really disappointing that this case kind of slipped through the cracks and didn't exactly make its way to law enforcement. But at this time, she also drugged a 72-year-old man she met at the Zebra Club. Once they ended up at his apartment, she took his cash checks and even his diamond pinky ring. Dorothea was arrested in 1982 and sentenced to five years in prison, but she served three years before she was released for good behavior. Was her objective with all of these killings to just steal from people? Or... Maybe. Okay, I'm just curious. Like, Was it just fun? Sport? <laughs> uh... I mean, that would be my assumption, but, like, who knows how it made her feel inside. Um, Yes, but it does seem like getting money and things was, like, a big motivation. So, before she was released in 1985, Dorothea met with a state psychologist. She was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He wrote that she had no remorse for her actions and considered her to be dangerous. He strongly encouraged that she be monitored after her release. But nonetheless, after she was out of jail, she started the boarding house at 1426 F Street, which is the big, important murder house. So I feel like for most of history, boarding houses were just a very bad place. I just feel like they're a breeding ground. I don't know, breeding ground, but just a place where people get killed in a lot of stories, I feel like, in history. Yeah. And this is like not this is the 1980s i didn't realize that boarding houses were still a thing thing. they were in um hey arnold so oh (laughs) yeah i mean i guess if you're going off hey arnold (laughs) (laughs) yeah super factual um well maybe it's more common in certain areas but nowhere that i've known i don't know well if if it was on hey arnold it's probably legit that was the 90s though still so I don't know, but started the boarding house. Her probation officers stopped by periodically over the next two years, but never suspected she was running a business because running this type of business 
would be something that she was not allowed to do. Um, Her home was always neat and orderly, and she always had an explanation for the people that were kind of in the background saying that her guests were just visiting or that they were her friends. So kind of shame on the probation officers for not doing a little bit more of an investigation into that or just not not asking more questions, not being suspicious. Or this just goes to show how good Dorothea was at calming people's nerves and kind of, you know, that she was so believable in her stories. So in November of 1985, Dorothea hired Ishmael. Ishmael? Is that how you pronounce I-S-M-A-E-L? Ismail? Ismail? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Um, She hired this guy. Mr. Flores, we'll say, to help do some wood paneling in her apartment. She paid him $800 and also gave him a red pickup that belonged to her boyfriend at the time. She said he was in LA and didn't need it anymore. Quite the payment to just give someone <laughs> a car. You'll see why it might have been getting rid of evidence. Um, so she had this six foot by three foot by two foot box. Now tell me, Natalie... Out of all the things in the world that might go in a six foot by three foot by two foot box, what do you think? What would be your first guess of, of what's in a box like that? A human. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> so she had this box. She asked Mr. Oh gosh, I forgot his name already. Flores to help her take it to a storage facility. She just, she said it was full of old junk and, you know, books or whatever. Um, But on the way there, she changed her mind and decided to dump the box on the riverbank. You know, just normal things of driving people around to to drop off body-sized boxes into the riverbank. Like, it's no big deal. Um, The box was found a year later by a fisherman. Inside was the body of Dorothea's boyfriend, Everson Gilmouth. Dorothea had continued to collect his pension and wrote letters to his family letting them know that he had not tried to contact them because he was too ill. And because of this, no one was looking for Everson, and his body didn't end up being identified for another three years. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that. Um, So... Mildred Ballinger, a social worker, first met Dorothea in the 1970s and got a really weird feeling about her. She noted that Dorothea was obsessed with her health and would tell people that she had cancer, but the cancer stories were inconsistent. Sometimes the cancer would be in her brain and sometimes in her liver and sometimes in her breast. She also noticed, uh, this is Mildred, that two of her elderly clients being treated by Dorothea had a sudden onset illness caused by high doses of prescription drugs. So she started to warn the other social workers to look out for Dorothea. She was not to be trusted. And then what? Smart. (laughs) Yes. I know it's, it's, it's interesting in the story, the people who kind of see past the facade. um, And because there are, you know, for, every person that was really suspicious of her behavior like the psychiatrist the social worker there were so many other people that thought that she was like this nice sweet old lady um so trust your instincts unless they're i don't know just trust your instincts and go with it even if even if everyone disagrees with you um (laughs) there's no great it's whatever um so (laughs) i i wanted to say something really profound but yeah (laughs) What I said was what I said. Deal with it. On November 11th, 1988, homicide detectives went to the last known residence of a man after a concerned social worker made a report. Claps to the social workers. I think this was a different social worker than before, but um, Alvaro Bert Montoya had gone missing three months earlier. Bert had bounced around from facilities and homeless shelters when he was taken into Dorothea's home. He had untreated psychosis, which is a pretty general term and doesn't quite give me a good understanding of what's going on with him. I think I saw in another source that they said he had schizophrenia. Um, But clearly, too, he was struggling with alcohol use um, and, you know, was just not not quite stable and was kind of being bounced around from place to place. 
without having a stable how or access to stable housing and access to medication it can be really challenging to mental or to manage one's mental illness so that may explain why he was having such a hard time but dorothea had a good reputation among social workers some of them anyway and was willing to take in people that had been turned down from other boarding houses Um, The social workers were relieved when this seemingly really kind old woman was willing to give them a chance. So this is a part that's messed up to me, is that the people she was taking in clearly were just having a really difficult time securing housing in other places and, and were going through a lot. And this just seemed like such a great opportunity and made their social workers, the people who cared for them, really excited that they might, you know, have... A better chance and, and have some stability in their lives so i am very very unhappy that it ended up not so great for them but since it wasn't uncommon for bert not to stay somewhere for very long people weren't suspicious that he went missing right away judy moyes an outreach counselor with volunteers of america had worked with bert before he went to stay with dorothea she thought it was odd that he was no longer at the house when she uh went in to to check up and visit and when she asked dorothea sorry hiccuping when she asked dorothea about where he went she just couldn't give a straight answer she had said that he went to mexico and then he returned and now he's living in utah but judy didn't buy it and she filled out a missing persons report on november 7th of 1998. an officer headed out to dorothea's house that morning to take a look around He talked to Dorothea and one of her tenants, John Sharp, who said, yep, no, Bert's in Utah, nothing to see here. But when the cops were heading out, uh, John slipped a piece of paper to them and it read, she's making me lie for her. So when he was able, (laughs) isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, wow, okay. Um, (laughs) When he was able to talk to the cops without Dorothea watching, he had a lot to say. John talked about um, previous tenants who struggled with alcohol abuse. Um, There was one in particular that Dorothea just rushed off to his room saying, oh, he needs to lie down. He'll he'll feel better later. The room started to smell bad, like rotting flesh bad. Ew. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is like my worst nightmare. Um, But Dorothea brushed it off, saying there was problems with the sewer. Um... But it was so bad that even the neighbors were complaining. He also let it slip, John did, to police that Dorothea had hired some prisoners on work furlough to dig some giant holes in the backyard. Which, like, there were so many different points in this story where someone could have been like, yeah, that's really suspicious, all these things that she's doing. Maybe the police should... Well, I guess she had the probation officers, like, going to her house. Like... Yeah. That's... It's crazy. So, prisoners digging holes in the backyard. Not giant, you know, human-shaped holes. Uh, You know, and they would later be filled with (laughs) concrete. So, you know, just your typical yard work type type thing, you know. I, I for one, would love some giant human-shaped concrete slabs in my backyard. What a, what a relaxing kind of, you know, porch type situation you got going on there. <sighs> anyway, um, so the cops had come to take a look at the house and everything seemed to be in order, but they started to poke around in the backyard and all heck broke loose. A tenant told the cops, had told the cops about the hole, so they were going and kind of poking around back there. And the cops ended up finding a foot that was attached to a decomposing leg. (gasps) Oh, gosh. Uh, So the cops had a sneaking suspicion that Dorothea was responsible for this body, but she wasn't arrested right away. The next day, Dorothea fled. Police found six more bodies wrapped tightly in cloth, bedsheets, and duct tape. These four women and three men, um, their ages ranged from 52 to 79, had been boarders in Dorothea's home. The boarders were often referred by their social workers. They were, you know, really severely mentally ill. And like I said earlier, this place was kind of a last resort. And I imagine that the, the victims of this case, you know, 
it wasn't unusual for them to go dis like disappear for a while or maybe be hard to contact. So that's why she was able to get away with it for, for as long as she did. Um, so Dorothea had laced their food and drink with prescription pills, killing them so she could collect their social security checks. Not she, nice. Right? Um, she collected around 5K a month, which... I looked up the conversion rates and said it because like 5k did not seem like that much to me um definitely not even close like nothing would be worth obviously killing people and, and covering it up yeah. but <laughs> it just so I, I looked it up and it said it's around fifteen thousand dollars in in today's dollars so still not worth it <laughs> again still not worth it but also like i don't know isn't that like isn't that kind of a crazy jump though like 5k to 15k like what's going on with inflation that was only know. in the 80s i guess that was like 40 years ago but i don't know you used to be able to buy a house for 50 cents so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah okay then um so new stations flocked to 1426 f street eager to catch a glimpse of the exhumations. Neighbors all huddled together in disbelief that this sweet old lady could be capable of such a monstrosity. They had eaten Dorothea's homemade tamales. They had watched her make a fuss over her garden, and she was seen as a charitable woman and was well regarded for taking in those with substance abuse issues and people experiencing homelessness. So even her ex-husband, uh, Roberto, uh, still supported her after their divorce. Her husband always thought she was a good person and thought she might have been capable of, of forging these checks, but couldn't believe that she was capable of murder. So what he thought was that the tenants had died of natural causes and she just buried them in her backyard to keep getting those checks, which also is just messed up. Like, I can't even. Um, so by that point, the police were ready to make an arrest, but Dorothea was nowhere to be found. Their search took them all the way to Mexico, and Dorothea was eventually found in a tumble-down, meaning beat-up or shabby, motel. I learned a lot of new words while researching this, this case. <laughs> <sighs> so the trial took place in 1993. Dorothea had been linked to two other deaths and was now facing nine counts of murder. Dorothea did not testify at her trial. And the jury on her case spent 24 days deliberating, which was the longest deliberation in state history. Dorothea was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole and was convicted of three of the killings. So 20 years after the arrest, Dorothea had agreed to be interviewed by Sacktown's magazine, which is a terrible name for a magazine. I'm sorry. Sacktown, I think it's like, something california but um this is where i got the majority of my information too is this art article by martin coos so dorothea was 80 years old at the time of that interview and she shared that in prison she continues to make tamales but does it now in her cell she was able to buy tortillas can chili and cheese um because there is a charity which she didn't name that sends her 15 dollars a month to to do that so Dorothea believes she is innocent. She admits to cashing the checks, but not to the murders. And this article is really long, and it went into a lot of detail about her life. And um, there was a lot of things I didn't include because it seemed like the stories of her past that she were, was telling were based on delusions. And obviously she is very much adamant about her, her innocence, which is you know, clearly not the case. So Dorothea has also said that she struggled with suicidal thoughts, but would never make any attempts because it would be an unforgivable sin. Uh, she ended up dying. As opposed to murder. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but Dorothea died from natural causes at the age of 82 in 2011 in a prison in California. So fast forward to a little bit more Recently, in October of 2019, Dorothea's old boarding house was set to be featured on the true crime show Murder House Flip. The 
the current neighbor at the time, his name was Huck Rees, and he said that he moved into the house next door before learning about the sinister background of the Victorian house that was now going to be flipped. And he heard rumors that there were still bodies in the backyard, which I feel like is... Like, if there were still bodies in the backyard, that would bring the police did a really bad job of yeah. investigating. Like, so what f- they do, find two and say, all right, let's stop. <laughs> so I feel like that's just the rumor mill, you know? Yeah. Like, ooh, I heard there's still dead bodies. But um, the production mm-hmm. crew, well, I think they were, like, totally in on this because they're like, we're going to use sonar to make sure all the bodies are located and removed. Um, so the episode premiered uh, in April 2020 couple months ago and can be streamed on quibi i don't have cool. quibi but i was bombarded with like advertisements for quibi for the longest time i'm still not gonna get it i still have too many streaming services <laughs> same so that's that also i don't know that i would watch a show called murder house flip just seems a little disrespectful in my opinion but if yeah. anyone else wants to yeah, I probably wouldn't. So. Ad for Quibi. <laughs> Pink Collar Crime, brought to you by Quibi. If Just only. Kidding. Don't watch Quibi. They are not <laughs> sponsoring us. <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, send us $5 instead, and, and we'll just tell you about it. leave us an iTunes review. There you go. <laughs> um, What a case. Right? Wow. And there was... That's like just scratching the surface. There's so much more to unpack by that. But getting back to your earlier point when you were saying that, um, did it seem like she was killing just for money? What what are what's your opinion now that you've got kind of the the full scoop? I mean, it it seems stupid for me to say that she was just killing for money, but it sounds like she was. <laughs> you know like oh i'm gonna get their pension i don't know it just seems like why couldn't you just raise the boarding house rent to like something absurd (laughs) i don't know but i mean yeah she i guess that was the most clear tangible motivation like money but my guess is also you know she was a little not okay and sometimes when people are not okay they do that I think you could consider, well, if you look at her past, clearly she did not have any stable attachments in her mm-hmm. family. And I do get the vibes of antisocial personality disorder or AKA, you know, being a psychopath, something that we've talked about before, just based on the fact that, you know, her psychiatrist and throughout this whole story, she's, it looks like she you know, has some type of antisocial personality disorder that she may, you know, have some delusions since she very, or, you know, she's strongly denying that she killed people and she's like convinced herself in her own head that she didn't do it. Who knows? There's yeah. a lot, a lot to unpack. Yeah. But, well, this is one of those cases, I think, where often with serial killers you know they come from backgrounds that are you know abusive or you know there's there's issues there so could things have been prevented if she was able to get some type of care earlier on would would anything have made a difference because obviously there are people who have abusive childhoods that don't go on to murder people so Mm -hmm. what is it about certain people that this ends up being the case it's a very good point. I don't think we'll ever know. Maybe someday. But as for now, I am sad for her that she had such a challenging childhood and do wish that she was able to get the care she needed earlier on before things... So that so many people did not... Spiraled out of control. I hope that that's something that, that would have helped. But, you know, obviously we can't say. And she did decide to to hurt people for for her own personal gain and that is not okay so interesting case there so there are on like a couple similarities 
you know, of the bare bones from your case to my case. Um, But yeah, I'm doing the case of Amelia Dyer. So, around 1835, Amelia Dyer was born Amelia Hobley in Pyle Marsh, England, which is near Bristol, England. Uh, She was the youngest of five children. Throughout her childhood, however, Amelia's mother suffered from typhus, which led to her mother experiencing, quote, mental illness. And so I don't really know exactly what they meant by that, but they did um, some articles to describe that her mother often had violent fits. Mm. Um, So Amelia, so at a very early age, Amelia was charged with the care of her mother until her mother passed away in 1848 when Amelia was 13 years old. In addition to experiencing the death of her mother at such an early age, Amelia had previously lived through the deaths of two of her siblings. She first experienced the death of her older sister named Sarah Ann, who died at the age of seven, or sorry, who died at the age of six. And her younger sister, who was also named Sarah Ann, uh, who died when she was only a few months old. And so after her mother passed away, Amelia was sent away to live with an aunt and became an apprentice. Did you say corset. aunt? Aunt, yeah. Is that how you say the word? I say aunt. But well, I think you say that's... a lot of things incorrectly. <laughs> um, must be like a Midwest. Well, I'm sure besides just the Midwest, but I think it's so cute when people say aunt. You sound all fancy. I think it's so elementary when people say aunt. I'm just kidding. Aunt. <laughs> Um, A-U, I don't know. Anyway, after her mother passed away, Amelia was sent to live with an aunt. um, And And for the Midwesterners. (laughs) And became an apprentice corset maker. Um, And so her father passed away when Amelia was in her early 20s. And soon after, she married a man named George Thomas. George was 59 years old and Amelia was 24. However, on their marriage certificate, they both lied about their ages to help reduce the gap because they didn't want any weird judgments or anything. And so Amelia listed herself as 30 years old and George listed himself as 48. So making it an 18 year gap instead of a still too much 35 year gap. Um, Yeah, pretty big. But, you know, consenting adults do your thing. Uh, Soon, Amelia became a nurse and a midwife. However, when Amelia gave birth to her and George's daughter, Ellen, nursing became difficult, became a difficult job for her to hold because she was Ellen's primary caretaker. And so this became even more true after Amelia's husband passed away in 1869. Amelia learned that there was a way to make more money using her nursing skills that was much more convenient for her life. Amelia opened her home to, uh, to young unmarried women who had, quote, illegitimate, end quote, pregnancies. And so once the babies were born, Amelia farmed them, which meant that she essentially served as a middleman for adoptions. This was financially financially lucrative for her because the mothers would usually pay Amelia up front for her services or they would pay like on a weekly basis until the child was placed. So they would pay for like the care of the baby. Um, and so Amelia, however, allowed some babies to die of neglect and malnutrition. Um, and so that obviously was not a good thing. However, she wasn't like intentionally murdering them, I guess. Um, and as I understand it, the whole act of baby farming at the time was less than legal. I'm pretty sure it's still illegal. Um, I would hope so. Yeah. And so Amelia remarried. This time she married a a man named William Dyer and her name became Amelia Dyer. And so this was in 1872. Together they had two children, a daughter named Marianne and a son named William Samuel. This marriage didn't last long. I'm not sure if they actually had a formal divorce or if people were even able to divorce in the 1800s in England. Probably not. Um, Yeah, but she did leave him. Uh, And so now Amelia was effectively a single mother with three children and she needed more money uh, to help support them all. And so this is where Amelia's actions turned more sinister. 
So she continued with her usual MO, which basically involved her first placing an advertisement in the newspaper that read something along the lines of, quote, married couple with no family seeking to take in a young child terms 10 pounds, end quote. And That's so, it. I mean, back then, if $5,000 in the 80s is $15,000 now, imagine what 10 pounds is. Probably like yeah. $10,000. <laughs> Maybe more. <laughs> yeah, probably a lot. And so pregnant women, usually young, unmarried, and experiencing some sort of financial insecurity, would respond to this ad, and usually they'd pay the fee. If needed, they'd board with Amelia during the pregnancy, presumably for an additional boarding fee, and Amelia would, using her nursing skills and midwifery skills, would deliver the baby. And so once the baby was born, the the birth mothers would leave, leaving the newborns in Amelia's care. This was either under the assumption that Amelia herself would be adopting the baby or that Amelia would take or sorry, would that Amelia would care for the baby until it could be placed with an adoptive family. As I said at the beginning of her baby farming career, this was actually what she was doing. She was giving these these women a place to stay, giving birth to their or delivering their babies and then finding a home to place the babies in. Um, However, Eventually, it occurred to Amelia that she could actually save money for save money on caring for the babies until they were placed with adoptive parents by simply killing them. So she would just pocket the money. Um, And so in one instance, a 25 year old barmaid named Evelina gave birth to a daughter named Doris out of wedlock. Evelina found herself in a situation where she felt it best to surrender Doris to be adopted by a loving family that could provide for her. Um, better than Evelina could. And so Evelina saw Amelia's ad in a local paper and responded to her with a letter. Amelia, posing as a woman named Mrs. Harding, was, sorry, wait. So she posed as Mrs. Harding to help evade from detection from authority. So it seems like whatever she was doing, um, People every so often, catching up yeah, sometimes there were questions. And so she would change her name and do different things to help um, evade detection from authorities. And so re- she responded to Evelina's inquiry and she said, I should be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. We are a plain, homely couple in fairly good circumstances i don't want a child for the money's sake but the company and home comfort i and my husband are dearly fond of children i have no children of my own a child with me will have a good home and a mother's love and so that's just um, extra cruel and yeah kind of messed up that it'd be one thing if she was like yeah i'd love a kid let's meet Mm -hmm. up but she took it so far yeah she obviously she was not married she was i think in the letter she kind of came off as being younger probably a woman who was of maternal age i guess um and she obviously says that she doesn't have children but she has three at this time they're probably grown children um and so yeah she's a liar and she was really preying on these women who really wanted their kids to be in a better situation and so yeah well i'm sure like giving up your child for adoption is already a hard enough decision but you're like okay Mm -hmm. i'm doing this because you want them to have a better life Mm -hmm. that's just so cruel and so at this time 10 pounds was a steep price for many normal working class folks and so evelina actually attempted to negotiate a lower weekly payment instead of the extensive expensive one-time payment of 10 pounds she was basically like you know how about for the next few weeks i give you blah 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 you know Mm -hmm. and amelia refused and insisted that it had to be 10 pounds at once evelina had very few options and so she had no choice to agree and so she paid evelina or sorry she paid amelia the 10 pounds and gave her the baby and a box of like baby clothes for doris little memories and things that she wanted the baby to have um and so once amelia had her payment baby doris's fate was sealed amelia almost immediately went to 
um, the place that her daughter was staying at the time. And she found something called, they call it um, edging tape, which I guess it's not actual tape the way that we consider tape, but it was used for like sewing. And so... I guess whatever, some sort of rope-like material. Got it. And she used it to murder baby Doris. Mm. Amelia would later say, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over for them. So she was clearly not well. (laughs) Um, And that's an understatement. And so she killed baby Doris and her daughter, one of her daughters, Mary Ann, from her second marriage was actually there and i think at the time she was like an adult of like marriage of marriage age and all that and so um a day later amelia repeated the same act this time with a little boy named harry this time amelia was actually in a pinch and she couldn't find any fresh edging tape or any other rope-like material so she used the extra length on the tape that was still tied around Nor- doris's lifeless body to what? strangle harry the heck yeah. Yeah. Um, And so Amelia and her daughter then took both of the babies, put them into a bag and they filled the bag with bricks and they dropped the bag into the river. Thames, I assume it's called. Um, Asking me for pronunciation help. (laughs) It's T-H-A-M-E-S. And so I'm using my knowledge of languages to say that it's River Thames and not Thames. Well, you literally know twice as many languages as I do. So maybe even more. (laughs) I don't know. Probably more. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I only half know English. So definitely more. (laughs) So, unfortunately, the ritual of dumping these bodies, particularly in the River Thames at the time, was part of uh, Amelia's general, like, MO. Uh, She did move around quite a bit while she was doing this. And so, uh, just at the time that she was staying where she was staying, this is where she would dump the bodies. And so, on March 30th, 1896, a bargeman, 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 I don't know. It's I think it's somebody who does something relating to boats. That's, I think. Yeah, that's what I would think. Bob and so <laughs> he spotted a package that Amelia had attempted to dump in the River Thames. Amelia had not adequately secured the package or weighted it down. And so uh, he was able to spot it and he opened the package and inside was the body of a little girl named Helena. Along with the body, police found wrapping paper and on a small piece like a small tiny piece of the wrapping paper they found the name mrs thomas along with an address this led the police to where amelia was staying at the time she was going by a few different aliases one of which was mrs thomas um unfortunately they didn't have enough evidence to arrest or even actually accuse amelia of any wrongdoing but they did decide to survey her so through surveillance they were able to piece together what they thought amelia was up to in regard to baby farming and presumably killing babies so they actually set up a sting operation which i mean for the time the 1800s i didn't know that they did sting operations and i feel like in a lot of our cases we see we see a lot worse police work yeah, um, this police work has now. been pretty top notch. I was gonna say. Yeah, they're you know following the breadcrumbs. They're setting you know her up and whatever, and so they found a young woman to pose as a young mother in need of Amelia services. The woman was able to set up a meeting with Amelia and talk more candidly about Amelia services. This was all that the police needed to link Amelia directly to the baby farming activities. It seems so silly that I'm calling it baby farming, but that's what they call it. So, and this was all the police needed to link Amelia directly to the baby farming activities. And so they raided her home on April 3rd and the police didn't find any bodies but like your case the home did smell very strongly of human decomposition and so they still gross gross. and so they found other related evidence however such as like white edging tape that she was using to strangle these babies Uh, They found pawn receipts for children's clothing. So kind of like the clothes that uh, Evelina, Doris's mother, had given 
Amelia, Amelia just took those clothes to the pawn shop to make even more money. And I guess I guess it was the eighteen hundreds. I was gonna say, could you even really get that much for like baby I clothes? Yes, I mean, maybe they were fancy old. But not just that. Clothes. I imagine back then, clo- clothes weren't mass produced, so you have to have like a seamstress, and so buying things from pawn or even what we consider thrift shops is probably like how not rich people were getting their clothes so yeah fair enough they also found receipts for the advertisements that amelia was taking out in newspapers they found telegrams about adoption arrangements and correspondence from mothers about the well-being of their children Based on the evidence, police were able to discern that in the few months prior to them finding the baby, um, Helena, at least 20 children were placed in Amelia's care. The police arrested Amelia the next day. Police suspected that over the years, Amelia had murdered over 400 babies and children. That's insane. I did not react to that when we recorded (laughs) the first time. When we didn't record the first time? Well, because you said 400. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know um we just like to do things twice because we're rehearsal. super professional see here's the, my thing is that okay so our recording obviously got cut off um and so i came up with this really funny title of i i titled our little recording take two electric boo and i was just laughing quietly to myself and i forgot to hit start recording <laughs> okay but yeah so she did kill 400 babies and children very unfortunately and the police then dredged the river thames and found six bodies commenting on the white tape around each of their necks amelia said that's how you could tell it was one of mine which wow what a statement that's quite bold and so Although her daughter, and presumably her daughter's husband, did help Amelia in the completion of her heinous crimes, or at least in concealing them, Amelia confessed as the sole perpetrator of her murders. Uh, and so I'm going to read like her confession, and she does not use punctuation, so I'm trying to figure out where the punctuation goes, so forgive me. It Just says, Sir... Will you kindly grant me the favor of presenting this to the magistrates on Saturday the 18th instant? I have made the statement out, for I may not have the opportunity, then I must relieve my mind. I do know and I feel my days are numbered on this earth, but I do feel it is an awful thing, drawing innocent people into trouble. I do know I should have to answer before my maker in heaven for the awful crimes I have committed. But as God Almighty is my judge in heaven and on hearth, hearth, I don't know. That's what it said. It could she maybe it was a typo. Who knows? Neither way, or sorry, neither my daughter Mary Ann Palmer nor her husband, I do most sol- solemnly declare, neither of them had anything at all to do with it. They neither knew that I contemplated doing such a wicked thing until it was too late. I am speaking the truth and nothing but the truth. As I hope to be forgiven, I and I alone must stand before my maker in heaven to answer it all my witness. My hand, Amelia Dyer. I don't know. Some of that didn't make any sense to me, but it was also the 1800s in England. So who England, could so. really tell what is... Yeah, they talked a little different. Craziness <laughs> and what is, um, you know. Yeah, and so... That's so interesting that she was trying to protect her family members. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to me that she has, despite murdering all of these babies and not seemingly having a protective instinct in that regard, she has a protective instinct for her own child. So it's interesting. Um, And so Amelia had in the past been committed to asylums twice and attempted to use insanity as her defense. However, it's believed that when she was committed to those asylums, she was just acting. She was using the parts of her childhood that she remembered when her mom was dealing with her own mental illness and insanity and those violent fits. And she was just kind of just acting that out again. Um, 
And so prosecutors actually successfully argued that Amelia was faking it. And they noted that both of the committals happened around times that Amelia was worried that police might be on to her. Suspicious. Mm -hmm. And so after a whopping four and a half minutes of deliberation, the jury very much the opposite of my case (laughs) the jury found amelia dyer guilty and she was sentenced to death by hanging which wow what a way to execute people i think i'm not a fan of execution in general but i just wow hanging um and so the hanging was scheduled for june 10th 19 no june 10th 1896 when asked her final words amelia said quote I have nothing to say, end quote. Profound. And was promptly dropped once the clock struck 9 a.m. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's in my case. Well, what a happy ending there was. (laughs) I mean. I'm being sarcastic, of course. (laughs) Justice was served in a way, I guess. Um. So, yeah, she was a serial killer. And unfortunately, her victims just so happened to be defenseless babies. Um, She also had a I didn't get to I didn't go too into details about like her childhood. But obviously, she had a lot of siblings, two of whom who died. She was estranged from her uh, her like brothers. And she, you know, both of her parents died pretty early on. And so I don't know if that trauma and also dealing with her mom's mental illness had some sort of an impact on her. I'm sure it all did. I don't say any of that excuses this heinous behavior, but it's right. um, Yeah, I there's not like enough about just her for me to even say whether it was antisocial i assume that there has to be something diagnosable in there um but sound of of course it would be hard to imagine that there wouldn't be yeah exactly and so but yeah i think back in those days it was a lot more common for having a sibling or two pass away and your parents maybe passing away at a young age mm -hmm. um not to discount the the trauma and i'm sure even if it happened quite often that it still is such a terrible thing to have to deal with yeah but still no but not everyone for... who was in exactly. those situations ended up being super baby killers exactly um and unfortunately only three as far as i could tell only three of the babies were identified so the ones that i named Aww. and so she definitely admitted like yeah i killed hundreds um and so sadly because of the situation or the circumstances around how these babies were even put into Amelia's care I assume that a lot of the birth mothers for these children never knew um, about their kids whether they never knew for sure if their kid was one of the I guess more fortunate ones that Amelia actually did place or if they were the ones who had a less fortunate fate so sad that's so sad so sad but right you were saying earlier that there were some similarities in between our cases and in this case both of their parents died when the kids were at a young age um their parents were abusive and struggled and i think that's something that's common too especially with male serial killers is that there's often an abusive mother or um you know some type of strained family relationship so it's yeah it's it's very sad and clearly both of our victims too really preyed on you know very vulnerable populations Mm -hmm. and they were you know clever i i don't know if that's the right word about it but finding people or or children that wouldn't raise suspicion if they went like yeah the the people that my person um was looking after it wasn't super suspicious if if they went missing for a little while or this person took advantage of the fact that these mothers were wouldn't probably be following up on the whereabouts of of their babies so it certainly shows to me that they had a thought process there 
and were really thinking through their decision. So it's hard to say that. I don't think insanity might apply to either case because there was just so much thought put into this. Yeah, I agree. They were very sneaky, sneaky about it. I agree. I don't think any of them were truly... I think they all knew what they were doing. And I think they're all doing it intentionally. And... (laughs) Yeah. Well, stellar police work on your case. Yay. I didn't say that earlier, but wow. Like for the 18, like even nowadays, that's, you know, not always the case, but they really, a, a, a plus job. to yeah. those you, you. old, old timey <laughs> cops there. Yeah. Good job, guys. They did a sting. Like that should be made, well, maybe not made into a movie. That'd be a super depressing movie, but just the whole sting thing seems really cool there are Rest a of it. lot of depressing movies though so it could work <laughs> touche touche oh my gosh we just watched with evan's parents at evan's house um like a sherlock holmes movie mm-hmm. and it was about a serial killer and it was so spoiler alert but <laughs> it was so over dramatic so the whole movie was basically about like a foot fetish the serial killer was like killing these young girls because he liked their feet and in the end, it turned out that it was identical twins who were doing the murders. And that's why the fingerprints didn't match up or, like, very unrealistic. Yeah. I was kind of mad because I was trying to, like, deduce. I was, like, coming up with a profile in my head. But I couldn't have seen that coming. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.